This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. Welcome to today's GHIL lecture by Amy Kaufman on medievalism, extremism and white history. The attack on the US Capitol in January 2021 showed right-wing extremists sporting a chaotic and cross-temporal panoply of symbols. From Spartan helmets and Confederate flags to Templar patches, Norse runes, an indigenous headdress and video game logos. This talk will explain how extremists weave symbols from particular historical moments and from renditions of those moments in popular culture into an alternate historical narrative that can most accurately be called white history, a mythical understanding of the past that elevates whiteness, colonialism and masculinity. Moreover, this talk will explore the way mainstream cultural forces such as textbooks, media and political speech reinforce these narratives even though they contradict real recorded history. Amy S. Kaufman is a medievalist working as a full-time writer and speaker on medieval literature, popular culture and the relevance of the Middle Ages to contemporary politics. Since completing a PhD at Northeastern University, she has published academic works on questions of gender in medieval literature, the use of Arthurian myths by medieval kings, as well as a handbook entitled Medievalism, Key Critical Terms. Her current research focuses on medievalism, extremism and white history, examining how medieval history is being used politically by white supremacists. Most recently, she co-authored the book The Devil's Historians, How Modern Extremists Abuse the Medieval Past, published in 2020. We hope you enjoyed today's lecture. So let me welcome you to this evening's event. Again, an online event. It's in our German Historical Institute London summer series. And this year, our summer series is about the abuses of the past by populist and far-right movements. And this seems very fitting because today is also, coincidentally, the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis at the hands of policemen. And this, as we all know, reinvigorated the Black Lives Matter movement globally. And it is a topic that has also impacted on the historian's profession. And as you will see on, for example, the blog by the German Historical Institute, where we have a category on race, history and academia, we have also begun to be part of the discussion about how historians should or can respond to the Black Lives Matter movement. And we have there on this blog essays on institutional racism and academia, on racism and historiography by, for example, Nuriani Hamdan, by Christina Morina, by Miriam Brusius and Patrice Putrus. 
And this is just a very quick acknowledgement of the significance of this date. And now, of course, we will fully <laughs> concentrate on Amy Kaufmann and her fascinating research, which she will present to us today. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. I want to start with an acknowledgement that I'm joining you from Vancouver, Canada, which is the traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. I'm really honored to have been invited to speak on this topic today, not just because it's such an important anniversary, but also because it's a pressing global problem. When I started working on extremist uses of history over a decade ago, I was mainly looking at fringe groups, radical evangelicals, I looked at the Islamic State, or violent groups from the past like Nazi Germany or the Southern Ku Klux Klan. Nowadays, though, when I talk about extremist uses of history, I'm talking about mainstream movements, politicians, and nations, institutions that affect almost everyone's life in one way or another, right now, all across the globe. Because extremism is a topic with so much contemporary resonance, scholars who are used to puttering along at our own pace <laughs> have to stay relatively agile. We have to keep expanding our ideas, our frameworks, and our definitions in real time to keep up with what's actually happening. And that's what I'm making an effort to do today. I recently co-authored a book on medievalism and extremism, which Marcus kindly mentioned, but that book came out a year ago. And since it came out, just following the news has forced me to expand my ideas about radicalization, who takes part in it, what their motivations are, and how radical extremists view history. So, although the title of my talk is Medievalism, Extremism, and White History, I actually want to talk beyond just extremist uses of the Middle Ages. Instead, we're going to talk about extremism and more sweeping historical narratives and the way that radicalization depends on a sense of the past that actually has very little concern for academic distinctions like time periods or even political distinctions like left or right. My focus today will be on the extremists who attacked the U.S. Capitol in January. A great deal of initial scholarly and media response to that attack focused on this guy, Jake Angeli. I'm sure you recognize his image, who also calls himself the Q Shaman. Medieval scholars wrote articles about and gave interviews about Angeli's Norse tattoos and what they saw as his Viking helmet. Medieval studies organizations even made official statements denouncing the use of these symbols. However, indigenous scholars like Joseph Pierce were quick to correct the label of a Viking helmet, explaining that Angeli's headdress wasn't medieval. It was indigenous American cultural appropriation. And in fact, a quick Google search of the so-called Q Viking would have revealed that Angeli himself says that his look is inspired by indigenous cultures. The guy even calls himself the Yellowstone Wolf and teaches shamanistic studies courses online. The fact is, there's a complex narrative on Angeli's body that explains his radicalization through his relationship to history, and it can't just be written off as a poor understanding of the Middle Ages, or even a typical demonstration of far-right white supremacy. And this doesn't just apply to Angeli. 
even when medieval symbols showed up at the capital attack in January, they had important companions, a Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt, Confederate flags, Spartan helmets, indigenous headdresses, animal skins and furs, Punisher skulls, and even the outsider tattoo from the game Dishonored. What the capital attack uniform looks like at first is simply postmodern pastiche, people throwing cool pieces of history and pop culture onto themselves to see what sticks. But really the symbols are interdependent. They create meaning through their relationship to each other, and together they form a larger and more disturbing narrative than just the appropriation of historical symbols, a narrative that, for lack of a better term, I've taken to calling white history. I came up with this term thanks to some Twitter harassment I got <laughs> when somebody tweeted something nice about the devil's historians. Some guy wrote this in the comments, wow, Jews rewriting white history, and then they wonder where is anti-Semitism coming from. I blocked the guy, of course, but on reflection, I actually found the term white history really productive. First of all, white history doesn't exist, and if it did exist, it wouldn't exist in a vacuum. Everyone took part in history. People moved around and migrated and traveled and made war on each other. There was no pure white historical culture. And whiteness itself is a relatively modern concept, one that began to develop in the Middle Ages but didn't fully develop until the transatlantic slave trade. And Kim F. Hall, her book, Things of Darkness, even though it's a few decades old, is really a canonical book on that phenomenon. And yet, if we look at the imagery from the attack on the Capitol, white history is precisely the story these terrorists are telling themselves. The images they use are of Spartan glory, Norse pagan glory, Templar glory, Confederate glory, Nazi glory. White history in this sense doesn't bother to delineate historical periods the way that we do in the academy or even to separate fact from fiction. There's no attachment to truth in this point of view. The attachment instead is to the story that gets woven together through seemingly disparate fragments. To today's extremists, white history is a battle played out over and over again with the same heroes and the same villains. To say it's Nietzsche's eternal return probably gives it too much credit, but there's a sense among the proponents of white history of a timeless conflict in which the outside aggressors are constantly trying to destroy what they consider white Western civilization. And at the same time, even though it's a myth or a series of myths, white history is very real. Most education in the US, Britain, and Canada could until very recently be called white history, history taught from a winner-take-all perspective that erases all dissent. The stereotype of extremists is that they're ignorant and uneducated, but that isn't always the case. A lot of what they think they know about white history was taught to them in school, from elementary school to university, and in books, and on history TV. And all the modern academic revelations about the past, all the new scholarship on diversity and global history is usually trapped behind a paywall. So to the best of my abilities today, we're gonna to talk about three of the white history narratives on display at the attack on the US Capitol, how extremists use them and how they're interconnected and how our institutions reinforce them. One of the most striking images from January's attack was this one, an image of the Confederate flag, a symbol of rebellion against the US government, among other things, at the US Capitol. 
Once just a relic of the American South, the Confederate flag's popularity recently spread throughout the United States in a surge of conservative backlash against the Obama administration and against civil rights in general. It's even made it as far north as Canada. The flag, also known as the rebel flag or the Southern Cross, is a symbol of white supremacy and also of the first white history myth we're going to talk about today, something called the lost cause narrative of the Civil War. In the lost cause version of the American Civil War, which some Southerners call the War of Northern Aggression, Confederate soldiers were heroic warriors defending their land from the godless industrial North. The lost cause myth claims that slavery was a benevolent institution, that the Civil War was about economics, and that the fall of the Confederacy was a tragic stroke of federalism against the glory of white Western culture. You can see from the architecture and geography of the American South, a commitment to and an obsession with ancient and medieval European history. They have city names like Athens and Atlanta, Augusta and Spartanburg, medieval street names like King Arthur Lane and Robin Hood Court. Antebellum Southerners saw themselves as chivalrous, gracious, and civilized. They considered plantation life a new kind of Camelot and themselves an agricultural and feudal vanguard against the industrial, corrupt, uncivilized North. White Southern slaveholders challenged each other to duels and jousted in tournaments for entertainment. They dreamed up bloodlines that connected them to medieval heroes and kings, and they commissioned medieval coats of arms. They built neoclassical architecture. This is Evergreen Plantation in Louisiana built in 1830, and this are remodeled to be neoclassical in 1830, excuse me. Uh, and this is a replica of the Parthenon in Nashville, Tennessee, built in 1897. When Southerners lost the Civil War, they believed that their aristocratic birthright, the very inheritance of Western civilization, had been stolen from them. And this sense of loss and imagined disempowerment gave birth to the Ku Klux Klan. Calling themselves the Invisible Empire, the earliest Klan members were white Southerners who wanted to reimpose white supremacy on the United States. They dressed in elaborate theatrical costumes and masks to terrorize Black citizens, Jewish citizens, and any citizens who rebelled against them. In light of recent events, it's important to note how clownish and farcical the early KKK seemed. How newspapers often referred to their attacks on Black Americans as pranks but their effect was deadly serious. When the first Klan members donned their hoods, over 2,000 black men held political office in the United States. This is at the end of the 19th century. But thanks to the Klan's terrorism and the way it infiltrated the ranks of government, police, and the judicial system, civil rights were snatched away from black Americans through successive waves of voter suppression, intimidation, poll taxes, and Jim Crow laws. If you follow contemporary American politics, a lot of this will sound familiar, a lot of the laws that they're trying to pass in the states right now. The first iteration of the Klan didn't grow, go underground so much as it went mainstream. When Klan members succeeded at seizing power, there was no need to hide their faces anymore. But success and power did not quell the Klan's search for violence. It spread along with their influence. By the 1920s, millions of Americans had joined the Klan. It was so popular that the university I taught at in Georgia named its 1913 class yearbook after the Ku Klux Klan, and there's an image of it here. 
and that was an all women's college, so that was particularly interesting. The Klan's propaganda inspired decades of terrorism against black citizens, their violent fervor spreading well beyond self-proclaimed Klan members. Whites formed lynch mobs in Omaha, Nebraska, massacred families in Rosewood, Florida, and decimated an entire black business district in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And these are just the most famous examples. The lost cause fantasy of white knighthood offered by the Klan with its pseudo medieval costumes and ceremonies, its ranks like Grand Dragon and Imperial Wizard, was also supported by powerful institutions. Most of the Confederate statues you see being torn down across the United States were erected in the 20th century after the Civil War by mainstream groups with explicitly white supremacist agendas, like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, who romanticized the antebellum South as an idyllic white paradise and mourned its loss. President Woodrow Wilson screened the birth of a nation at the White House. It's a white supremacist revenge fantasy that paints the Ku Klux Klan as noble knights, the Lost Cause narrative also made its way into history textbooks, including as recently as 2010 in Texas, when the Board of Education removed discussions of slavery as the cause of the Civil War and replaced it with discussions of states' rights. And the Lost Cause narrative of white history still permeates both extremist circles and mainstream ones in the 21st century. The Klan regularly papers neighborhoods with recruitment flyers and even takes photos with American congressional candidates. In 2015, Dylan Roof murdered nine black Americans at their Bible study, telling them, quote, you rape our women and you're taking over our country. You have to go, end quote. After the massacre, the Klan papered neighborhoods with celebratory flyers and red and white striped candies. When Trump passed an executive order on protecting American monuments in June 2020 and vetoed a defense bill because it renamed 11 bases that were named after Confederate soldiers, or when you see calls to ban critical race theory and silence any voices that might critique so-called Western civilization, this is what they're fighting for, that mythical white history, a history that sees a continuous line of brave white men fighting for their land and protecting their women from ancient Greece right through to Robert E. Lee. This brings me to my next big white history myth, and the reason I try to use scare quotes around the term Western civilization. This myth is known as the clash of civilizations. In the 1990s, political scientist Samuel P. Huntington coined the term when he argued that the world was split into Western and non-Western cultures and said that these civilizations had such different values that they would never make peace. His idea gained popularity after 9-11. It's an important example of how radical extremist ideas and institutional values are often in accord. The popular modern version of the clash of civilizations posits that Islam and Christianity are engaged in a timeless eternal conflict. The medieval crusades are often invoked as a blueprint for this eternal truth. But so strangely enough is ancient Sparta. Specifically, Leonides fighting the Persians at the Battle of Thermopylae. Milan Lave, come and take them, was what the Spartan hero supposedly said when Xerxes told him to lay down his arms. Another popular phrase among extremists is with your shields or on them, which is a phrase that Spartan mothers supposedly said to their sons when they went to war. 
Although Sparta is obviously pre-Christian and pre-Muslim, Sparta's resistance to Persia is often merged with Crusades imagery and reveals how much anti-Islamic sentiment is intertwined with racism. What these extremists really see is not a moment in history, but an eternal race war between white Western civilization and the East. The white history myth of the clash of civilization has fueled incredible violence. In 2011, Anders Bering Breivik murdered 77 people in Norway driven by his hatred of Muslim immigrants. Breivik claimed to be a leader of the New Order of the Knights Templar and wrote a 1,500-page manifesto that railed against Islam, multiculturalism, and feminism. In 2017, Alexandre Bissonnette murdered six Muslim men in a Quebec City mosque because he feared that non-white, non-European immigration would lead to the marginalization of whites. He posted crusader imagery on his Facebook page alongside his racist screeds. The 2019 Christchurch shooter scrawled the names of medieval crusaders on his weapons. His manifesto invokes the Knights Templar and Pope Urban II and declares until the Hagia Sophia is free of the minarets, the men of Europe are men in name only. But the clash of civilizations myth and the violence it provokes aren't just fringe sentiments. It was part of the rationale for America's invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. Throughout these wars, some extremist soldiers sported crusades-themed patches meant to inflame their Muslim opponents. And I got these images from a former student's spouse who was also a former military. The patches were for sale on military websites. You can see images of a medieval knight eating a pig's head that reads pork-eating crusader in both English and Arabic, or a crusader knight riding a bomber jet, or simply a crusade's cross emblazoned with a skull and the words embrace the hate. The clash of civilizations myth is also behind the bans on Sharia law passed in multiple U.S. states and in Quebec. It's the reason the residents of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which is another town I used to teach in, set fire to the construction equipment for a Muslim community center not once but twice. It's part of the motivation for Brexit, where pro-leave demonstrators rallied under crusader crosses. And in Brazil, far-right leader Bolsonaro has been using Deus Volt, a crusade's rallying cry, as his party's slogan. But although white supremacist extremism is the dominant brand in the US, Canada, the UK, and parts of Europe, the myth of the clash of civilizations is actually more complicated than that. Radicalization is a hydra, a lot of heads coming out of the same body. It's an international problem that's not just limited to Christians or to conservatives or even to white people. The clash of civilizations narrative is a powerful radicalizer for any group invested in cultural supremacy, religious nationalism, or ethno-nationalism. Turkey's far-right President Erdogan has his guards dress in Ottoman costume and as shown here, attends dinners at medieval times. He has a state-sponsored television programs like Urtigrul, in which a medieval Ottoman hero battles crusaders, Templars, and Byzantines. The self-proclaimed Islamic State used the Crusades as a key recruitment strategy. They claimed to be reestablishing a medieval caliphate and declared that they would defeat crusaders to usher in the end of the world. The Hindu nationalist movement has invoked the medieval Muslim conquest of Hindu cultures as justification for its violence against local Muslims. 
And I think it's fair to say that the clash of civilizations narrative is a factor in Israel's recent attacks on Palestine. It would be easy to throw up our hands and say, oh, well, everybody does it. Both sides are guilty. But that's not the takeaway I want you to have here. We have a lot to learn about parallels in the online radicalization of extremists, not just among different types of nationalists and religious fanatics, but also among radicals on the far right and on the far left. I know that the far left is not where you were expecting me to go with this, but understanding where the extreme right and left meet up and what they agree on is key to understanding a figure like Jake Angeli, the so-called Q shaman. Reading the conversation on Angeli's body, his appropriation of indigenous culture, his tattoo of Trump's border wall, his tattoo of Yggdrasil, of Valknot, this blob that is probably Thor's hammer, uh, and his protective crystal shows us that following the pattern of other eco-friendly QAnon adherents with a penchant for appropriating indigeneity, Angeli may have started out on the political left and become enamored with an ideology called eco-fascism. Eco-fascists are against multiculturalism, immigration, and globalization because they think that these things destroy the environment. They believe in a return to nature, idealizing and appropriating what they see as pure cultural traditions connected to the land, which they believe have mystical powers that will help save the planet. The Christchurch shooter was an eco-fascist, and so was the 2019 El Paso shooter who targeted Mexican-Americans and named his manifesto An Inconvenient Truth after the environmentalist documentary. According to Jason Wilson, writing for The Guardian in 2019, there's a thriving online eco-fascist subculture that, quote, looks forward to and even talks about accelerating the end of industrial civilization. It dreams of a return to a blood and soil relationship between peoples and territories and of a post-collapse society that will restore the authority of white men, end quote. If this all sounds a little bit Nazi, that's because the Nazis also believed there was mystical power to be found in the prehistoric past, power tied to the land that could help them fight Jews and strengthen the white race, hence the expression blood and soil, which implies a supernatural connection between a people and their land. They claim that the suppression of Norse folklore had led to a decline of the West and that restoring ancient wisdom could save Germany from cultural decay. The Nazis look for the Holy Grail and for ancient Norse runes, but they also colonized traditions that didn't belong to Germanic or Norse or medieval heritage. They had a particular penchant for co-opting and appropriating indigeneity in all its forms. It seems counterintuitive, but the long-running Nazi narrative was of a homogenous Aryan race with its tentacles rooted in cultures all over the world, hence their co-opting of the swastika. This pagan Norse symbolism loved by Nazi Germany has become increasingly popular among extremists. Hate groups call themselves wolves of Vinland or soldiers of Odin. The Sonnenrad that Himmler used to decorate his castle was also on the cover of the Christchurch Shooters Manifesto and on his ammunition bag. Like the Nazis before them, today's eco-fascists also exploit indigenous cultures, which they see as powerful because of their connection to the land, and merge them together without distinction. Eco-fascists are obsessed with Norse gods, but also with the Celts, and with the movie Braveheart, 
also with appropriating First Nations and Native American sacred objects. They are into veganism and white supremacy, recycling and anti-Semitism, indigenous spirituality and Norse mythology, socialism, organic food, and guns. These seeming contradictions are especially evident among eco-fascist women who brew their own kombucha, grow vegetables, sage their houses, and sponsor white baby challenges for their YouTube followers. So for someone like Angeli, the fact that his Norse tattoos are medieval doesn't really matter. The Norse tattoos are part of a long and timeless narrative of white power, lost power, and they, like the indigenous traditions he stole, promise a return not to a medieval past, but to something even older, a connection between man and nature that can't be contained by something as petty as chronology. His brand of white supremacy merges all pagan and indigenous spirituality together into white magic. And I mean this both figuratively and literally. When asked by the National Review to explain his outfit, Angeli said it's meant to, quote, chase off evil spirits, chase off evil sorcerers and evil witches, satanic warlocks, and stuff like that who might attempt to infiltrate our movement, end quote. Angeli's appropriation of indigeneity is at the forefront of his identity. He's longing for an imagined prehistory, not medieval history. That longing is the fire that fuels violence, not just for Angeli, but for scores of white supremacists, some of whom have turned into mass murderers out of the fear of being replaced by other races. This brings me in a roundabout way to my last white history myth, the great replacement theory which is a myth that unites the Nazi, the neo-Confederate, and the eco-fascist. The Great Replacement myth is a supposed global conspiracy to wipe out white people. In a lot of versions of this myth, Jews, or the more quoted word globalists, are the power behind the Great Replacement, manipulating politics and world events to wipe out white people once and for all. The myth that Jews are trying to destroy Western civilization has been around a long time, and was one of the motivating factors for the Holocaust. Nazis argued that Jews manipulated non-Aryan races in a campaign to debase white culture. One of history's many anti-Jewish rants in Mein Kampf claims that Jews brought black people into Germany with, quote, the clear aim of ruining the white race, throwing it down from its cultural and political height and himself rising to be the master, end quote. Modern extremists have rediscovered this conspiracy theory online and have acted on it with alarming violence. The white nationalists who rioted in Charlottesville in 2017 famously shouted, you will not replace us and Jews will not replace us. In 2018, Robert Bowers murdered 11 Jewish worshipers at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, saying he wanted all Jews to die because he believed they were funding a caravan of refugees from South America to cause white genocide. In 2019, John T. Ernest attacked a California synagogue and his manifesto claimed that Jews were using immigrants and black Americans to destroy white people. Jews are not the only target of the great replacement myth. The Christchurch shooter who murdered Muslims in New Zealand called his manifesto the great replacement and blamed Muslims instead of Jews for the destruction of the environment. This myth can and has been used against anyone a white extremist fears being replaced with. Like all the other white history myths I've talked about today, the Great Replacement has also been reinforced by mainstream politicians and governments. In the early 20th century, white America's 
desire to claim an Anglo-Saxon heritage meant violence and discrimination against Black Americans, Jews, Muslims, Asians, and even Irish and Italian immigrants. Limits were placed on how many non-Anglo-Saxon immigrants were allowed in the country. Japanese Americans were locked in internment camps and boats full of Jews were sent back to die in concentration camps in World War II. Modern conservatives have been crying about the declining white birth rate and a so-called demographic winter for more than three decades. And I can think of four op-eds I've read in the last year complaining about this so-called fertility crisis. Fear of a mythical great replacement was the reason for Trump's border wall. The reason his administration separated parents from their children and imprisoned them in horrific conditions. It's the reason for all the anti-diversity measures he signed into law in the twilight months of his presidency. And of course, the great replacement theory was back in the American news last month when Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene called for a return to a quote, Anglo-Saxon heritage. So what does all this mean? Radicalization doesn't start with getting Thor's hammer tattooed on your stomach, however badly. It starts with a sense of entitlement and grievous. Extremists tell themselves a story about the course of human history and their place within it. And once you identify this story, you can spot radicalization when it's happening around you, maybe even in the early stages. And more importantly, you can identify and work against mainstream institutions, and there are plenty of them, that promote narratives of white history and fuel extremist violence like the Capitol attack. Most extremists want to change the future, but the heart of their radicalization looks backwards, not to history as most of us think of it, or to any single historical period, but to a lost and faded, timeless, mythic space, an Eden before the fall. Because when you think about it, the narratives of Western civilization being celebrated at the Capitol attack were mostly narratives of loss. Sparta, Norse pagans, Templars, Confederates, Nazis, these are all lost causes, all dead and defeated. The terrorists who attack the Capitol don't think of themselves as privileged, despite freely carrying weapons and having the cooperation of several Congress members some members of the police, and the former president and his administration. Instead, they think they've lost privileges and rights, falling from some imagined glorious status they would have had at another moment in time. At the risk of being flipped, the extremists who attack the Capitol don't think they're the bad guys. They think they're the resistance. So as a brief conclusion, I'm often asked when I give these talks what we as historians or educators or just generally well-meaning people can do about all this. We can write all the op-eds and teach all the classes we want, but our media and our social media and even our universities are so divided that we often find ourselves preaching to the choir. So the most concrete advice I have isn't always the advice that scholars want to hear but it's based on observing the radicalization of the far right in Southern states like Georgia and Tennessee during the 10 years I was teaching there. American radicalization did not start with Trump. It started decades earlier as people who believed in all the white history narratives I was discussing today took positions on school boards and in local governments and on university boards to make sure that these myths remained in state textbooks and curricula. They ran for low visibility positions in cities and towns and enshrined their beliefs into law. 
and the money followed them. Billionaires and conservative interest groups funded education about Western civilization and capitalism and God at American universities. Big money donors backed small political campaigns and those same donors funded lawyers so they could argue their cases in state courts and then in federal ones. And yet, despite the rising hatred and anger and the conservative power plays that I saw when I was teaching in the South, Georgia turned it around because of the incredibly hard work of local organizers. And just last year, that state changed the course of American politics thanks to Black Americans' ground-up, unglamorous local activism, the kind that's invisible to so many people. So while there's certainly a place for changing hearts and minds on bigger platforms, like books and social media and blogs and lectures like this, and you may wish that your voice and your words had more reach, I definitely know that feeling, know that these platforms aren't usually where real change happens. If you wanna get rid of narratives that support radicalization, you need to turn your energy and influence toward your institutions. Use your expertise to make changes in the curriculum at your university or local schools. Address the movements in your city, even the tours of your local town to see what kinds of stories get told and what stories don't. You won't get a lot of attention for it. You may not even get a lot of Twitter followers out of it, but you will be making a difference. And I'm gonna wrap up now and take questions. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.